Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is covering Dead Poet Society as part of an Ethan Hawke series that I've been doing. Uh, going through his various films, starting with the before films, and I'm going to end in December with the film First Reformed. I thought I was going to end in November on his birthday, but I think instead I'm going to do an extra film in there, which is going to be the next uh, film in two weeks. So you'll hear the preview at the end to find out what that's going to be. On my site, since the last podcast, I have put up, uh, well, a couple posts that I forgot to mention last time that actually had gone up a little earlier. One of them is called The New Path Through Journey Through Twin Peaks, and this is a guide to the approach I'm going to take, not just to my Twin Peaks videos, but to everything, including podcasts, uh, the order in which I'm going to do everything. So if you kind of like to know the nuts and bolts behind the scene and have a sense of what I'm working on at, a mo at the moment, uh, you can check this out. And that also kind of explains why I'm a little late with this podcast coming out a day or two after I usually release these. I usually try to make them available Wednesday of each week, but I've been catching up with some Patreon work and uh, I'm just trying to follow this order and not fall into this sort of scattered approach that I fell into this summer. So that may mean for the next few uh, weeks or next month or two, that these podcasts come out a little later than usual, but they'll still be fairly regular. And then after that, they'll be really regular because I'll be recording a bunch of them ahead of time. So anyways, that's all the behind the scenes stuff. You don't necessarily need to know, but on Patreon, I put out the uh, coverage of Twin Peaks episode 13, the one right before the big end of the, uh, the mystery, the central mystery on the show. This leads right up to it. That's available for $1 a month patrons, and for $5 a month patrons, I've released a couple uh, new episodes on episodes 19 and 20 in the middle of season two. And I also put out a uh, the month main monthly episode with the film Three Women by Robert Altman. I talk about its relationship to Twin Peaks, as I often use that as a framing device for whatever movie I'm talking about. And I read some of my archive reviews on Robert Altman, particularly on the films The Long Goodbye, Gosford Park, and Tanner 88. I also do some Twin Peaks reflections on uh, characters of Leo, Shelley, and Ben, the locations of the Johnson House and the Town Hall, and the storyline of Cooper and Audrey, which I tie into Lynch's film Wild at Heart. Now, Lynch is actually going to play a little bit of a part in a coda to this episode where I talk about the sound designer for Dead Poets Society. This is a longer episode than usual, both because the review is a little longer, but also because I'm incorporating both that bonus material that I recorded uh, later in 2018 when this episode was originally recorded, uh, talking about some features on the DVD and what I thought about that, and then also sharing some, some listener feedback on Dead Poets Society that I found pretty interesting going into this viewer's experience with the film, how it inspired them in their life, and what they took from it. So you can listen to all of that at the end of this, and I hope you too will write in your feedback on Dead Poets Society, and I can share it on future episodes. I'm always interested in hearing people's thoughts about any film I've covered, even if I covered it a few months ago or eventually when the podcast gets there a few years ago. So that's it. Let's get into Dead Poet Society. Gentlemen, what are the four pillars? Tradition, honor, discipline, excellence, manners up. 
Welton Academy for Boys, a breeding ground for the future leaders of America, an institution dedicated to achievement, virtue, and conformity, a school whose rigid standards are upheld by every single teacher, except one. Come on, Mr. Overstreet, you twerp. Mr. Anderson, are you a man or an amoeba? Language was developed for one endeavor, and that is to communicate. No. To woo women. Mr. Keating. Some people like to rock, some people like to roll, but moving in a groove is gonna satisfy my soul and have a party. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating, teacher. Well, is this a dagger I see before me? Philosopher. I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to it. Orator. Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. And founder of the Dead Poet Society. A bunch of guys sitting around reading poetry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. What was the Dead Poets Society? The Dead Poets were dedicated to sucking the marrow out of life. Spirits soared, women swooned, and gods were created. Not a bad way to spend an evening, eh? I hereby reconvene the Dead Poets Society. To strive, to seek, to find. Gotta do more, gotta be more. <laughs> Dare to walk a new path. Dare to strike out and find new ground. I'm hearing rumors, John about some unorthodox teaching methods in your classroom. Break out. I'm gonna do it! John Keating. He began by teaching English. Now, he's changing lives. I got the part! Tear out the entire introduction. Who put you up to it? Was it this new man, this, uh, Mr. Keating? Are we just playing around out here? Or do we mean what we say? Vision, honor, discipline, rip, Fred Tear! What is this dead poet society? I want names. This is a battle, a war. The casualties could be your hearts and souls. For the first time in my whole life, I know what I want to do. Medicine, law, business, engineering. These are noble pursuits. Poetry, romance, love. These are what we stay alive for. That's beautiful. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Sit down. What the hell is going on here? Seize the day. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating. He was the inspiration that made their lives extraordinary. Dead Poet Society. I first heard about Dead Poet Society around the time it came out. Uh, in fact, I went to see, I think maybe it was like a year and a half later or so, um, but probably around the Oscar season of maybe early 1990 when they were giving out the awards for 1989 although probably not because i think i saw i think the 19 the awards the 1990 awards were the first ones i actually saw the ones that were given for 1990 not for the 89 films but whatever you know the the case may be i was like 6 or 7 and i was really keen on movies that were coming out new movies and probably saw that at the video store and was curious about it and there was just always an air of sadness and melancholy surrounding it i was told by people adults who had seen it oh yes it's uh sad movies about this teacher who inspires the students but one of the kids is really pressured by his dad and he kills himself and i thought that that kid was ethan hawk because i i think i heard about the movie around the time i saw white thing in early 91 with i want to say my cousin and my mother we all went to it together Uh, i was about seven years old and, uh, you know, Ethan Hawke was in that movie, and they were saying, oh, he was in that movie Dead Poets Society. My cousin was a teenager and had seen it. They mentioned a student dying, and so I thought that was him. So only years later, I think, when I saw it, did I realize, oh, like, Ethan Hawke isn't, isn't the one who dies. He's a different character in it. Uh, but Ethan Hawke is very young in this movie, you know, baby-faced, 
Uh, I think he was 18 or 19 when it was shot because I think he was born in 1970 or so. 69, 70. And, and so this is one of his earliest roles, I think. I don't think he was like a prominent child actor. I can't think of anything he was in. But really, of course, the star of the film is Robin Williams. He's the one who everybody remembers, this teacher who uh, arrives at this prep school. I think it's supposed to be in Vermont, although it was shot in Delaware. And he invigorates all these students. Well, it's an interesting precedent for all of these inspirational teacher movies, which have come out just in droves since since then and before then too. It goes all the way back to at least Goodbye, Mr. Chips from the nineteen from nineteen thirty nine, about a teacher, and that one also is about a teacher at a prep school, who uh, in that case he arrives. The students won't give him the time of the day. Finally, he kind of gets a grasp of how to teach them, and he becomes one of the school's most beloved teachers when he dies, and they. The age, uh, Robert Donat, uh, is it Robert or Roger? I can't remember. Robert Donat, uh, about, you know, 30 or 40 years. So he starts off as a young teacher and he ends up with a big droopy white mustache and it has a certain charm about it and all of that. And Dead Poet Society, I think, is almost like a fulcrum. Like there's movies like that beforehand. And then afterwards, the movies tend to be made about these teachers who come into public schools, usually like inner city schools. And they teach the kids who are really resistant. And they, those two kind of follow the goodbye Mr. Chips model, except instead of prep students giving them a hard time, it's like public school students, uh, you know, that, that are giving them a hard time. And often there's like a racial component to it. It's like a white teacher coming in to like a black classroom or a Hispanic classroom and getting the kids to listen to them. You know, Dangerous Minds is an obvious example of this and, and so forth. So there's been different manifestations over the, of this over the years. Um, but Mr. Holland's Opus is another one that follows like the goodbye Mr. Chips model where it's following the teacher over many years. So it seems like there's there's two versions that I can think of. The one where it's sticking with the teacher as the students pass by. And in these films, the focus is really on the teachers aging and how they interact with the school over a long period of time, usually some sort of historical emphasis. The kids go off to World War One and are dying or rock and roll comes along or whatever the case may be. And then the other example is much more focused and narrow. It's usually the teachers there for like one school year and they change the kids' lives in a positive way, these kids from troubled backgrounds and give them some kind of hope or something like that. And this film doesn't actually totally fit. I mean, it's much more of that second type, but the fact that it's prep school kids, these really privileged kids who are going to go on and become bankers and lawyers, gives it a sort of a twist in retrospect because these aren't characters. Ostensibly, they don't need to be like uh, opened up to opportunities or whatever kind of message that they're trying to send. You know, they've already got their lives planned out. So this is a liberal, like free your mind type of movie where it's the prosperity, the, the economic base of it is almost sort of taken for granted. These kids already have the economic security, but he wants to challenge them to live exciting lives. And that's the angle it's coming from. Now, I remember reading, I think even before I saw it, uh, reading some sort of negative reviews uh, well, one in particular from Roger Ebert, and this was a very acclaimed 
film. It's certainly a beloved film. Audiences took to it and it was shown in classrooms all the time. That's where I first saw it in a classroom from a teacher who I think was inspired to become a teacher by the movie. Um, but Ebert was much more critical and he felt that it was a shallow film in some ways. And that if he was truly, if Mr. Keating was truly a great teacher at the end of the film, these students would love poetry. Instead, they just love him. You know, he was good at writing those sort of snide cutting lines. Um, and there is, I mean, there's some truth to that, but I think to be fair uh you know to sort of split a middle ground between that you could say that the goal of keating isn't so much to make them love poetry or to make them love him it's to make them more excited about life in general and use poetry as a prism to direct them through so in the film it follows a, i guess somewhat predictable narrative arc which isn't to be critical necessarily, but the teacher arrives, the students are all used to very dull disciplinarian forms of teaching, and then he takes them all out into the hallway, he shows them pictures of dead students, well, <laughs> dead students, he shows the pictures of students who are now dead. Pictures from the 19th century says they were all young like you, and now, you know, they're food for worms. Carpe diem sees the day, and that's the motto of the film, I mean, very much so the motto of the film, and I think, um, quite probably launched that whole carpe diem industry where you have everybody's got the mugs on them that say carpe diem and stuff. Obviously, it was a well-known Latin term or whatever, but I, I think the sort of cottage industry of people saying carpe diem to inspire themselves and have that mentality, I, I think that kind of came out of this. It came very much out of a certain you know mentality, too. This is very much a uh, baby boomer generation film, although the kids are a bit older than baby boomers not by much they're you know if they're 17 or 18 and the film takes place in 1959 then they would be they would be sort of on the older end of the 60s uh, generation the funny thing about the baby boomers is the oldest boomer comes like square in the middle of young people in the 60s so in some ways it's actually not a very good demographic marker you know you have people who were born in the early 60s who can barely remember all of the icons of that generation Woodstock and the moon landing and 68 the riots the assassinations and all that stuff they can barely remember that they were in like preschool or kindergarten um, but they are baby boomers and then you have people who were in college at this time were like young people out on communes protesting all the stereotypes uh, taking LSD whatever in their you know in their 20s and they're not baby boomers, technically speaking. To get into the demographic hair splitting, the sensibility of the film is very much that like post-60s uh, self-expression kind of ethos. And I remember, interestingly enough, a, a, a patron and a guest on this show, Max, who came on for the Blade Runner 2049 series, he had a, a, a dif different reading of the film, as I recall. I think he watched it in a classroom and got in an argument with some of the classmates who were all angry about the way things turned out in the end. And uh, I don't want to misrepresent him here. Maybe you can write in feedback if you're hearing this. But uh, I think his take was basically that the teacher was actually pretty irresponsible in telling this kid, encouraging him to follow his dreams and become an actor. I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's a character in the film, Robert uh, Sean Leonard that plays him, the actor. He has a very strict father who wants him to follow a certain path, doesn't want him doing many extracurriculars. 
and isn't from a hugely wealthy family. So he's more worried about maintaining their position than some of the other fathers who are, are who can afford to be more indulgent. One of the kids who's like the biggest rebel of them all, he's from one of the wealthiest families. So he kind of can do whatever he wants. This kid's more pigeonholed. Uh, but he's taken up with the romanticism of Keating and his presentation of poetry. And uh, then he sees a, a poster for a play nearby and he wants to be in the play. So he auditions for it. It's Midsummer Night's Dream. He's playing Puck. And the father tells him not to do it. He does it anyways. I guess we're getting into spoilers. I've already talked about some of the big plot points in the film. So if you're still with me, you probably don't care. This character, the father says, we're pulling you out of the school. We're going to send you to a military school in the morning. And that night he kills himself. And so all hell breaks loose at the school. The teachers are bringing in all the students, trying to get them to sign a condemnation of uh, Keating, the Robin Williams character, and uh, get him fired, which they succeed in doing. There's also clearly a uh, McCarthyist vibe to this, where they have, we already have the information, we just want you to, to turn him in. This is very much a movie that comes out of that, uh, I guess not just post-60s, but post-50s mindset. And so to, anyways, to get back to the question of did he do the right thing, uh, as I recall, Max was pushing back against the consensus, which was very much a sort of a straightforward reading of these these stern, stock villainous school marms and or school professors. They're all men, the parents, the disciplinary parents and saying, no, it's not that simple. Uh, this kid wasn't ready for this kind of trauma and this this facing off with his father and the teacher was irresponsible in pushing him to do that. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I think within the context of the film, I, I'm i not sure I share that reading. I think it's uh, fair to say that... I think it's fair to say that the, the film expects us to side with Keating. I mean, it certainly does, I think. But there is some complexity there. There is some ambiguity there. And I think particularly Robin Williams brings that in his performance. Just some of his expressions his reactions his facial reactions to things that happen you can feel you can see there's a sort of a guilt uh, sadness there where he is realizing that maybe he he misstepped here and he's gone too far uh, and other teachers tell him they do warn him like the latin teacher who has an interesting kind of warm relationship with him says uh you know you're, you're telling these these kids that they're that they're Mozart or Shakespeare or whoever, and they're going to hate you when they find out it isn't true. And he's dismissive of that. And yet this is a character, he seems, there always is a sadness to him as well. We briefly see a picture of someone who's in London, a woman um, that he's in love with or something, and he has her picture on his desk. And he seems like he's a, he's a joyous character, but he's also kind of sad. And I think that's probably the most compelling thing about the film in a way, because it is, it can be seen as this cliched stock picture where you have all the bad guys, one note. Uh, just, it's, it's a bit like shooting fish in a barrel, let me put it that way. This is 1989, this is now. You have people in their 30s and 40s who've grown up, come of, come of age, lived for 20 or 30 years believing in this sort of ethos of the free-spiritedness against this stodgy dust-covered conservatism, and it's an easy target, culturally speaking, anyways. The culture war, so to speak, had already by, I mean, already by this point, you had conservatives pretending that, oh, we're the real rebels, you know, we're the ones who stand up against conformity. And you only get that when everyone's accepted the premise that actually rebellion is good and the status quo needs to be overturned, and then they just decide to fight over the mantle of who's actually the one doing it, at least superficially. Obviously, conservatives did want to 
defend the status quo, but not, not to get off on too much of a tangent. So the point is, you can see this as an easy film. I think I felt, I, I think I felt that way a bit on first viewing, and probably still do, to be honest. It, it's, it's not uh, necessarily like the most complex social dynamic that it's depicting, um, which isn't to say it's not realistic in some sense. I think in some ways, the older I've gotten, I want to say I have a less nuanced view, but I think it was sometimes easy uh, as like a teenager or whatever, maybe with a bit of a contrarian streak to always think, well, no, things are, you know, more complicated than that. There aren't people who are sort of these stock villains. And now I almost think, well, no, there actually are, (laughs) there actually are a fair amount of people who are just kind of almost one note bad, you know? Uh, yes, there's, there's nuance to it, but, uh, you, you can be safe sort of depicting them as somebody who is a challenge and has to be overcome. You know, I guess it's easy to say that recording this the week of the Kavanaugh hearings. But anyways, enough digressions. In the film, uh, it may want us to sort of read the dynamic that way. But I think the, the those subtle moments in Robin Williams' performance, um, and just the fact, too, that it's a directed, if directed a different way, this could come off as just like a cliched movie of the week almost. Not to say that it's a bad screenplay or anything. I think there's artful touches. There's some good dialogue and exchanges here and there. And it's, it's you know, fairly well crafted in terms of its structure and its outcome and everything like that, sort of following a certain route of storytelling. Uh, this is definitely one of those screenplays you could probably teach in like a screenplay colloquium type of environment. Uh, although it is interesting that there's not a straightforward protagonist in some ways. Keating feels like the protagonist in some ways, the uh, Robert Sean Leonard character feels like it in some ways, Ethan Hawke character does. And I think the way to parse that out would be to say that it starts off with uh, the character who's, who's going to end up killing himself as the main character. And it's almost like psycho or something, except it happens much closer to the end. That character who is our emotional surrogate and are the one who's driving the action, I guess. He's suddenly unexpectedly killed off, and the other character has to step in and become the main character. And so I think by the end of the film, Ethan Hawke is the protagonist, the moment where he stands up on his desk and he leads the, all the students in a chant of, oh, Captain, my Captain, to pay tribute to the Keating as he sails away. And we end on a long close-up of, uh, not exactly close-up, actually, it's through another character's legs, which is it's an interesting shot. You know, as I said, this is great, wonderfully directed by Peter Weir. I think the direction is uh, the strongest suit of the film. The screenplay is good, it's solid, conventional in many ways. I think the direction lends it a bit more nuance at times, and not even so much necessarily in, front of the, in, in terms of the performances. I think some of the characters are a bit one-note, but uh, just the the delivery of of the of the dialogue and the mannerisms of the performance that he gets out of them. There's a richness to it. And of course, I can't end this review without pointing out this is a gorgeous looking film. So many shots of this campus with the mist rising among I mean it's an easy it's an easy thing to make look good to find an old storied prep school environment out in the country and film it with the the snow falling and the leaves falling and the morning do and I think they're able to ring out a certain pathos uh, through that scenery. So I guess my short summation of it would be it does perhaps lack some complexity, but it's a film I'm kind of a sucker for, uh, partly for the obvious reasons. You know, you have the inspirational teacher and these 
sort of heady romantic atmosphere that they cultivate in it, but also just uh, on on sort of the the maybe it's shallow grounds, but just how much I like the atmosphere of this film. You could be a sucker for a film because it's a good film, and also just because you like the environment that it's in. Uh, and I think this is this is a good film, but it also just has an environment that I I find uh, really rich and fascinating to watch. Uh, one more thing I should note, there's a whole storyline about like a student who has a crush on this girl from the public school and he's pursuing her. And that part, frankly, comes off kind of uh, cringy now, I think. They don't really even try to flesh out the character at all. She's just pretty and that's all that matters. And he obsesses over her and he like follows her into her classroom and is reading poetry and embarrassing her. And then, of course, she goes for him anyways. And I think that's an aspect of the film that I think uh, points to maybe some of the potential shallowness that is there overall, but uh, there's depth to it too. The scene of the parents finding the student after he's killed himself is, I think, really powerful. And the fact that he shows all of this, and certainly people listening to this show will have Twin Peaks in mind, you know, a show that came out uh, just within months, really, of this film's release, probably, uh, certainly within a year. Um, the depiction of parents discovering a child has died and grieving. Uh, that's handled very, very well, very, very humanizing, even though it's a character we're not supposed to like. And I think that's the type of thing Peter Weir brings to this film where it could come off as uh, reductive, but he, he manages to wring the potential out of it there. As a follow-up, I recorded this bonus material about the DVD for Dead Poets Society. I also watched Dead Poets, A Look Back, which was a special feature documentary on the Dead Poets Society DVD. Uh, and it had a couple other features which were really surprisingly interesting. Uh, one was with the cinematographer who, I can't remember who it was right now, but he like rebuilds a set on a uh, uh, it's like a, a sound stage at a at a college somewhere, a film school in Australia, and he shows the students how he lit it, and it's just really fascinating because you know with anything you watch the movie and you think they're in some dorm room in less prep school, but of course no, it was like a assembled set filmed on this controlled sound stage with like you know a tarp uh, stretched out overhead, not a tarp, but you know what I mean, to filter the light through. So that was fascinating. Uh, it was from the early 90s. All of these features were pretty old, and the DVD itself was about 10 years old, and you can just really see you know, the technology. Um, I, I heard something today, I'm trying to, it was on some podcast I was listening to, where they kind of joked about, does anyone watch DVDs anymore? And it's just kind of funny, like, I'm so, I, I don't subscribe to many streaming services at all. In fact, technically, I don't subscribe to any that I have access to Netflix and, uh, you know, I, I'm still renting the DVDs from Netflix. I, d I definitely feel like a bit of a dinosaur technologically in terms of how I engage with film media. It's just sort of what comes to me or what other, you know, what, what I don't know. It's, it's just interesting. So anyways, that's a, that's a tangent. But uh, this Dead Poets uh, documentary was, was pretty interesting. They talked a lot about Peter Weir and the impact he had in the cast, but probably the most interesting part in a way of this DVD was they had a special feature on the sound designer who was Alan Splett, who many of you will know as David Lynch's sound designer for many years before Lynch, uh, he passed away and Lynch started doing 
the sound on his own films, just on his own, starting with Firewalk with me, I think. And uh, Alan Splett was like a genius, a genius of sound. So they spend a lot of time talking about him. And then lo and behold, David Lynch comes on the soundtrack. And about half the documentary was all Lynch talking about how he met Splett and what, how he, you know, did sounds. I think it might be from the Eraserhead uh, features that he put on his version of that disc long before Criterion released it when he did like a Lynch director approved Eraserhead edition in the early 2000s. And here's some feedback I received about my review and about the viewer's own experience with Dead Poet Society. Okay, I got another comment on episode 38 of the podcast. And that was from Saba. They said, Hi Joel, the last weeks I've been listening to the Room to Dream audiobook, which is a real treat. However, as a consequence, I developed a major backlog of podcasts, so I'm a little behind at the moment. You asked what listeners think of Dead Poet Society. Let me start by saying that your podcast really makes me want to revisit this movie. I haven't seen it in more than 20 years, but I remember it had a profound impact on me as a child. I was about 10 years old when it was released in Belgium, and I think it might have been one of the first movies I saw in the theaters, although I'm not sure. The moment John Keating has to leave the classroom, Todd Anderson stands on his desk and his fellow classmates follow his example, moved me in a way that I can still recollect so many years later. It was one of the first times I experienced the power of cinema. As a youngster, it also showed me the power of rebellion and standing up for your beliefs. I remember doing my own, albeit less heroic, Ethan Hawke impersonation in primary school. A teacher was complaining about two students who had disturbed the class by talking too much. The teacher addressed the class, Everyone here can testify that these two students are disturbing elements in this classroom. I raised my hand, asked permission to speak, and proclaimed I would not because I refused to testify against my friends. My teacher was furious but speechless, and my fellow students gazed in awe. On another note, your musings on the existence of evil remind me of a similar evolution in how I view the world. As a child, we learned of the existence of good and evil through fairy tales. The characters and stories are stereotypes, a battle between heroes and the forces of pure evil. As we grow up, we learn that reality is more complex. People aren't purely good or evil, and each individual has his or her own story. Actions that at first sight seem good or evil often have more complex motivations and can be understood when looking at the broader picture. However, as I am nearing my 40s, I come to the conclusion that maybe underneath it all, underneath all the complexity and nuances, the struggle between good and evil is real. There is an ongoing battle between empathy and greed, between the ruthless and the compassionate. It's important to have a nuanced view of the world, but at the same time, we need the audacity to discern right from wrong. On my site, I received another comment uh, on this same podcast. It was from Caedicus, who also mentioned that they were catching up with some podcasts after a while. It said, as somebody who has long had a soft spot for both Dead Poet Society as well as Quran's Great Expectations, I was wondering if you see any commonalities in both that might make you more forgiving of their flaws or that might simply elicit a response from you that is compelling for aesthetic or personal reasons. I ask because I adore the story of Great Expectations, both the film and the book, and yet I just cannot get into most everything else I've read by Dickens. But for some reason, there is something very mystical, melancholic truth in Great Expectations, some very mystical, melancholic truth in Great Expectations that has haunted me ever since I read it. It's eerie to think of the ways in which that truth has, in mutated or hidden forms, played out in my own life in some ways. 
and Quaron's adaptation, even with its many flaws, does a decent job of conveying that same melancholy truthfulness for me. I responded, I do know exactly what you mean, because while I like a lot of other Dickens quite a bit, nothing else I've read by him resonates with me to the extent Great Expectations does. Although I think the lean adaptation is the strongest overall, I think Quaron gets to the heart of the book in some ways that Lean doesn't. Certainly his and Paltrow's Estella feels much more on the money than Lean's and Hobson's. And they also asked, I forgot to answer that in the comments, so I'll answer it here. If there's like a commonality that makes, that sort of elicits a response or makes somebody, you know, more, more, akin, more prone to like Great Expectations and Dead Poet Society, uh, but both of the films. I think there is just like there's like a moodiness to them that's really uh strike both Peter Weir and Alfonso Cuaron are they're able to kind of they're very poetic like landscape films in a way actually Cuaron using the sort of the swamps and the marshes of Florida and uh Weir using this kind of autumnal and wintry New England uh, well actually it's Delaware but you know it's meant to be New England and it does look a lot like New England at times but that sort of northeastern um, seasonal aspect you know both both films are able to capture that really nicely I think that's one thing um, I don't know <laughs> I hope that if you have thoughts you'll share them here also please rate review and subscribe on iTunes particularly, I guess it's Apple Podcasts now. But if you enjoy the show, that's the best way to share it and get other people into it. And if you really like this work, please consider donating, becoming a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies for a dollar or five dollars a month. But there's so much more out there. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Here's a preview of the next episode. I'm gonna start trying something new where I don't tell you exactly what it's going to be, but you can kind of pick up on it from the trailer. So I hope you enjoy that approach. And if you can't figure it out, you don't mind waiting two weeks to find out. I will tell you it's a continuation of the Ethan Hawke series. And uh, this is a film that I originally kind of forgot about when I was assembling this series for my public podcast. And then I said, oh, yeah, that's right. There was another Ethan Hawke film I covered uh, that I that I wanted to share here. So I enjoyed seeing this film quite a bit when it came out. I think it's one of the few that I saw in theaters in this series. So here you go, here it is. In the next 24 hours, the only thing more dangerous than the line being crossed. Today's a training day, Officer Hoyt. Good chance to give you a little taste of reality. You think you can handle it? Is the cop who has crossed it. I will do anything you want me to do. Will you? We'll see.